morning, one and all. The book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you will find one somewhere under the chairs. Please reach out and grab one. And join us as we turn in God's Word again to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 1. In chapter 6, verse 3, Paul asks, do you not know? Again in chapter 6, verse 16, he repeats the same question. Do you not know? And now for a third time, today's text, chapter 7, verse 1, he asks, do you not know? Brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And so three times Paul has asked the same question. Again, in the sixth chapter, verse 3, do you not know? Verse 16 of the 6th chapter, do you not know? And now the very first verse of the 7th chapter, do you not know? It is significant for a number of reasons in the context of Paul's letter. But as I was reflecting on it this past week, uh, I realized it's significant for another reason. Uh, The question, just the mere question, forget everything else attached to it. The mere question, do you not know? is of tremendous significance itself, especially given the noise we hear today in our society. Just a question. Do you not know? Again, the question itself speaks, I believe, very directly into the prevailing mindset and confronts the prevailing mindset, mode of thinking, Uh, so prevalent in our society today. And I want to begin this morning by affirming three ways in which that is true. Here's number one. The question implies, do you not know? Think about it. The question necessarily implies that knowing is possible. That's obvious, isn't it? Do you not know? The question itself implies that knowing is is possible. In other words, God's truth, this is Paul's starting point, God's truth 
is objective. As he writes elsewhere to Timothy, there is such a thing as the good deposit, which has been entrusted to God's people. God's truth is something to be received. It is something to be studied. It is something to be preserved. It is something to be defended. It is something to be proclaimed. That runs contrary to the prevailing mindset, the way most people think today. The way most people operate today is as follows. God's truth, God himself, is something to be discovered. No, he is not. God is revealed. His truth is revealed. God is declared. His truth is declared. We are simply to receive it. There is such a thing as objective truth, objective reality. John Sachs wrote a number of years ago an analogy. Perhaps you're familiar with it. An analogy called the blind men and the elephant. The blind men and the elephant. Here's how it goes. Six blind men touch a different part of an elephant without knowing what it is. Can you picture it? Six blind men reaching out, touching an elephant without knowing what it is. They don't know what they are about to touch. They reach out, touch it. One feels its torso and says it seems the elephant is a wall. Another grabs the elephant's ear and says it's a fan. Another grabs the elephant's trunk and says it's a rope. And on it goes. The moral of the analogy for John Sachs and many in our day is that we are just like these blind men when it comes to knowing God. We are searching for something. We can't really understand it. Each person has a little part of the truth, but not the whole truth. Now, here's the problem with the analogy, okay? What if the elephant can speak? And what if the elephant says to those six blind men, before they reach out and touch him, I am an elephant. They then reach out and touch him and insist, no, I don't think you are. I think you are a wall. I think you are a rope. Or I think you are something else. Please understand, those men are no longer searching for the truth. They are simply manifesting what? That they are committed to their own own blindness. My friend, please understand it, Christian. That is the society in which you live. But knowing, get this, knowing is possible because God has spoken. And God has given us his word in this book, the Bible. Here's the second implication of the question, do you not know? It implies that knowing is pivotal. It's pivotal. It is absolutely crucial. It is absolutely necessary. It is intriguing that Paul, as he asks this question three times, he does not appeal to his audience's emotions. Do you not feel? not where he goes with this, folks. He does not appeal to his audience's experiences. Have you not experienced? He appeals to what? Knowledge. He does not appeal to their emotions. He does not appeal to their experiences. He exhorts them to think biblically. Knowing knowledge is absolutely crucial. Unless we know the truth, We become captive to our doubts, our fears, 
our lusts, our griefs, our trials, our frustrations, these in turn dictate our thoughts, our desires, our affections, our actions, our lives. Please, my friends, know. Knowledge, knowing, growing in knowledge is absolutely pivotal. Richard Baxter gave a very challenging exhortation centuries ago. I've modernized it. Here it is. Were you, Christian, were you as desirous to get the knowledge of God as you are to know your job, your hobby, or your favorite sports team? you would have committed yourself to it long before this day. You recognize that years are required to learn your trade, yet you will not even dedicate one day in seven to knowing your God. Oh, my friend, I pray that's not you. Knowing is absolutely pivotal, crucial, necessary. Do you not know, says the Apostle Paul, Thirdly, this question implies what? It implies that knowing is practical. We need to hear that. Because often we think knowledge is unpractical. Often we think knowledge is simply theoretical, cerebral, ivory white tower. Give me something practical. No, knowledge is in and of itself practical. That is assumed in Paul asking this question three times. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? I can do no better than quote from the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. There is an indissoluble association between doctrine and life. So many foolishly say that they want to be able to live the Christian life and that they are not concerned about the doctrine, to which the simple answer is that it is only the people who really know and understand the doctrine who can live the life. That is what the question implies. The question asked three times implies that knowing is possible, knowing is pivotal, and knowing is practical. Paul's main point in this section, it is a huge section. Again, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, it goes all the way, extends all the way to the end of chapter 8. So three huge chapters. His principal theme is holiness sanctification. In the previous section, his principal theme was justification, the removal of the penalty of our sin. In this section, he is dealing primarily with the breaking, if you like, the overthrowing of the power of our sin. The big section, chapters 6, 7, and 8, yes, there are different things going on in this principal section. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, through to the verses we just read, chapter 7, verse 6, Paul is really just trying to accomplish one thing. That's it. I know he said a lot, and I hope he wouldn't take offense with me if you were here today saying, well, I'm saying a lot more than that. I think he would give me some leniency here. He's basically only, he's really just going after one thing, one principal truth he wants to convey and make sure Christians understand. And here it is. God's grace does not, God's grace does not lead to sin. It leads to holiness. That's all he's saying. That is all he is saying. I know there's a lot of confusing thoughts in here. 
It goes down a few what we might call rabbit trails, a lot of complexing truths and principles and whatnot, and some things which really we struggle to grasp. But when it's all said and done, this is all he's trying to do, trying to establish this firmly in our minds. God's grace does not encourage sin. When rightly understood, when known, it encourages, it leads to, it cultivates holiness. And what he does in this first part of this big section is he proves it. He proves it in three ways. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? The question introduces each of his sub-arguments in which he is proving his main point three ways. And he proves it by appealing or using, employing three illustrations. And so the first in chapter 6 verse 1 to chapter to verse 14, the illustration he is using there is baptism, right? And he says, look, I want you to understand that there are two men and as a Christian, there was the old man, what you were in Adam. Oh, you were a, you were a mess, complete mess. Uh, you were sin-ridden. You were guilty and condemned before God and simply waiting for judgment to be passed, executed. That is who you were. That is the old man. But I want you to understand that you are now one with Christ. And baptism points to this, this idea of being baptized into Christ's death, into the water, into his resurrection, out of the water. You're now one with him. Therefore, you're now a, you're a new man. The penalty for your sin has been paid because you're one with Christ. And he paid the penalty for your sin upon the cross. You're one with him in God's reckoning. Therefore, the penalty is paid in full. But not only that, the life you now live, the Holy Spirit is in you. Therefore, yes, you're waiting glorification, but the power of that sin which had dominion over you has been broken because you are one with the Lord Jesus. So two men, an old man, a new man. Baptism is the illustration proving what? That, that God's grace doesn't encourage sin. It encourages holiness. Then in the second section, chapter 6, verse 15 through to the end, verse 23, he uses a second illustration. And here it is slavery. And he's no longer talking about two men. He talks about two masters. He says, I want you to understand this, that there was a time formerly when you had a master. Uh, your master was sin. You were enslaved to sin. From the moment of your birth, you were born into this world under the rule, the authority, the jurisdiction of a master. And you did his bidding. Everything you did, corrupt, because of your corrupt human nature. Everything you did. Even those things which, which seemed to be good in appearance. Never done for the right reason, never done for the right motive, and therefore ultimately sinful in God's estimation, God's sight. That was the master who ruled you. But understand this, you've been born again. And because of this new birth, you now have a, a new master. You are now united to Christ. And your master now is righteousness. Your master now is obedience. Your master now is God. Therefore, if you understand this, you will present yourself to your new master, not your old master. You'll dedicate the faculties of your soul and the members of your body to doing his will. And so please understand through this second illustration, my main point, which is simply this, simply put, God's grace does not encourage sin. It encourages holiness. And he comes now to the third section a third illustration, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And here the illustration is no longer baptism, two men. Here the illustration is no longer slavery, two masters. Here the illustration is 
marriage. Two weddings. Two marriages. And his point is simply the same. God's grace does not encourage sin. It encourages holiness. Do you not know? Here is what you must understand. Here is what you must grasp. We can follow his reasoning easily. I have broken it down for you in the sermon notes in the bulletin under four headings. And if we get these headings, again, you you first read it, you kind of shake your head. What's he on about here? What's he talking about? But if you simply think in terms of these four words and follow his thought flow, you'll, you'll get it. Stay with me. I promise you, you'll get it. And keep in mind this idea of two marriages. The first word in his thought flow as he develops his argument here in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, the first key word is this, principle. That's it. The principle. In the very first verse, he simply lays down. He establishes a principle. Look carefully at what he says. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Forget everything else that comes after. Forget everything else that came before. Just hone in. Give your attention to this question. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. What does he mean? What is the principle? He he wants to build. Well, to build, you have to lay a foundation. And so here he's setting the foundation because he wants to build on it to make his main point. Don't trip over the word law. All he means by law here is law in general. He's just making a general point, the reality. And we can relate to this. We know this is true here, living in Texas Living in the United States of America, we all know that there is such a thing as law. There are laws. There are laws, federal laws, state laws, even municipal laws. There are laws that we must obey. And as long as we are alive, what? We are under the laws, jurisdiction, authority. We're accountable to it. But when we die, guess what? The law no longer has any jurisdiction. That's the principle. That's all he's saying. Here's a, here's a, morbid, here's a morbid example of what I mean. You know, work with me, folks. There's a man or a woman, I don't know. There's someone, individual, holds up one of the little convenience stores there in town. Okay, and there's a robbery. Speeds away in his getaway car up the highway here, and he's going 110, 120. Loses control, swerves off the road, hits a tree, and he is killed. Okay? Has he broken the law? He broke I don't know how many laws while he was was alive. If they had caught him, he would have been charged, prosecuted, and would have suffered the consequences. He's killed when his car hits the tree. Guess what? Are they going to charge him? Why not? The law no longer has jurisdiction. Now, we all understand that, right? That's all Paul is saying. That's it. That's it. That's the point he is making in the very first verse. He is simply establishing a principle. The principle is this. When you're alive, guess what? You're living under law. That law has authority over you. When you die, guess what? It no longer has any jurisdiction. 
Second key word in his thought flow is this, illustration. He uses an illustration. And the illustration begins in the second verse. Thus, a married woman. Okay, here's what I'm talking about, he's saying. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so Paul is simply trying to get very, use an illustration here. He's trying to get inside his audience's head. He said, I've just laid down a principle. And before I get to my main point, I just, you know, work with me, folks. I, I, I hope you're understanding this, just how this works. And he's grasping for an example, an illustration to you, marriage. Okay, let's think in terms of marriage. The principle holds true that uh, if you're married uh, while your spouse is alive, well, by the law of marriage, you are bound to your spouse. That's all he's saying. He uses the example of a woman. So a woman is alive, her husband is alive. While he's alive, she's under the law of marriage. If she were to leave him, go live with another, well, she's broken the law and she's called an adulteress. That is what she is labeled, okay? But, hey, let's suppose her husband dies. Well, then that law of marriage, what, what, what happens to it? It no longer exists. It's gone, kaput, never to come back again. Therefore, she is free to what? Marry another. So there's the principle in operation. There's the principle you can see it in daily experience. That's all he's doing in verses 2 and 3. The third word is this, and here's where he gets to his main point, the application. Verse 4, and look at the very first word. It tells you he's summing it up here. He's coming to his main argument, likewise. And he uses that phrase again, my brothers. He used it back in the first verse. Likewise, my brothers. Here's the aha moment. Here's why I have said what I have said. I've established that basic principle. I've illustrated it for you in marriage. Now, here's the point I want you to make. Do you not know? This is what I want you to grasp, the fourth verse. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And so what is the principle? The principle is this. As long as we are alive, we're under law. When we die, we're free from the law. We see it in a marriage relationship that a wife, as long as her husband is alive, she's bound to him, he's bound to her, the law of marriage. One of them dies, Well, the marital bond, that law is broken. They're free to marry another. Likewise, okay, here is my main point. Please understand. Uh, There was a time when you were were married. It's an old marriage. And uh, you were under this marriage, and the marriage was to something called the law. And what I mean by the law is, I I mean that law God gave way back in the Garden of Eden. What he established with Adam, the law as a covenant of works. And according to that law, here's what it required of you. That law basically required two things. The first we can sum up in the word duty. The law required perfect obedience. That's what it still requires. Perfect obedience, the covenant of works. Here's the second thing it requires. It requires that if you break the law, if you disobey, you will suffer the penalty, the consequences. So there is a duty, 
required perfect obedience. There is a penalty to be exacted judgment, eternal death. Understand that you were, you were by marriage, you were bound to that law. You were under that old marriage. That law had jurisdiction over you. The only way, the only way you can get out from under that jurisdiction is how? Say it with me. Death. That's the principle he's established. But not your death. Whose death? Through the death, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's union with Christ because you see you are made one with him through faith. He has died. He paid the penalty for you having broken that law. He fulfilled the requirement of that law. Therefore, it's jurisdiction, the jurisdiction, the authority, the dominion it had over you as a covenant of works is now nullified, null and void. It's done. It's been broken. How? By death. You are one with Christ in his death. And then Paul, fourth word, is the implication. The implication of this tremendous truth of two marriages. The old marriage to the law as a covenant of works. That jurisdiction broken by Christ's death and our union with him in his death Therefore, the application, what does he say at the end of verse 4? Middle of verse 4. To the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Meaning what? That marriage is over. Legally. Death. It's done. You are now free to do what? Marry another. Whom? He identifies him clearly there in verse 4. So that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus. And here is the beautiful implication summed up right at the end of verse 4, and then he expands on it in verses 5 and 6. But here it is succinctly stated at the end of the fourth verse, in order that, the implication, we may bear fruit for God. That is the implication. Does God's grace encourage sin? Oh, my friend, do you not know? Do you not know? Two marriages. Dead, that old marriage. Alive now under Christ, a new marriage that we may bear fruit for God. He expands on it in verses 5 and 6. In the fifth verse, he reverts back to the old marriage. And he says, look, I want you to get this. While we were living in the flesh, so before God saved us, Before we were born again, while we were still that old man in Adam, while we still served that old master sin, while we were still under that old marriage, that old covenant, our sinful passions, what we were by nature, aroused by the law, we despised the law, it stirred up everything in us, we're at work in our members, our body to do what? Bear fruit for death. We couldn't bear fruit. The old man, the old man, under that old taskmaster, under that old covenant, no matter how hard we tried because of our sinful nature, the fountain was polluted. No matter how hard we tried, that old marriage, that old covenant of works could not produce any fruit. All it bore was fruit for death. But here's the marked contrast, verse 6. But now... 
But now we are released from the law. Yeah, the law had jurisdiction over us while we were alive, but we're no longer alive to it. We're dead. We've died in Christ. Having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And as consequence, we no longer bear fruit for death. But what was the phrase he used right at the end of the fourth verse? We bear fruit for God. That is the implication. Do you not know? I want you to notice firstly, by way of application, the word, I alluded to it already. Here it is again. First verse. Do you not know, brothers, brothers? He uses it again in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers. He is speaking to whom? His assumption is what? He is addressing Christians. He's addressing believers. He's addressing those who have repented of their sin. They have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are one with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But they're struggling. There are these silly notions surrounding them. There are some silly ideas threatening them. And so he appeals to them, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? What in particular? I want to sum it up in six questions, brothers. These are for believers. These questions are for Christians. Here they are. Question number one, right out of the text. Do you not know, brother, sister, do you not know that you were, past tense, married to the law? It's who you were. You were married to the law. From the moment you entered this world, you were under the law as a covenant of work. And in that covenant, God required of you, let me repeat it, and please make no mistake here. God required of you, demanded of you, perfect allegiance, perfect obedience. You must love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. That is what he required. You broke that covenant even before you were born. You broke it in Adam when Adam disobeyed as your head, your representative. You simply confirmed it. We simply confirmed it by the life we've lived. As we continue to disobey God's laws, God's commands. We were, we were born under this marriage, born in, uh, obligated to fulfill this covenant of works. And we bore as a result the penalty for not having done so, eternal death. Do you understand that, brother? Do you understand it? Do you not know that you were married to the law? Here's the second question. Do you not know that this marriage produced fruit for death? Do you not know that this marriage produced fruit for death? And so, please understand, hear me out. It's not simply, it's not simply that you did some bad thing. It's not simply that you got some things wrong. It's not simply that you sinned 
frequently or infrequently. That isn't Paul's point. Paul's point is this, that having been born under the covenant of works in the condition you were born, all you ever produced, all you ever produced was fruit for death. You think of a stream. I think I made reference to it a few moments ago. You think of a stream, you go back to its source, and there's some big business, I don't know, company is pouring toxins, pollutants into this spring. And the water bubbles out of that spring, and a mile downstream, uh, you don't know what's going on, but a mile downstream, you uh, kneel down at, that, at, at the water, and you drink it. The smell smells good, smells normal, looks normal, it's clear, tastes pretty good, but guess what? Appearance is is irrelevant. The water is what? It is polluted. And you are going to suffer the consequences for having drunk from the spring. That is us. That is us by birth. And this this is the stumbling block. Oh, this is the great stumbling block. The great stumbling block for the unbeliever is this. How dare you categorize me? Or how dare you number me with that man, that woman who has done this or done that? How dare you put me in the same category in God's eyes, God's estimations? For starters, I don't. The Bible does. Because the problem is not merely our deeds. The problem is our desires. The fountain is polluted by nature that is no love for God. And you, my friend, can go through life and live in the estimation of man what seems to be a pretty good, upstanding, clean, respectable life, but it is filthy rags in the sight of God because nothing is ever done out of pure love for God and for His glory. We bear fruit for death. The third question is this. Do you not know, brother, that this marriage is now over? That old marriage is over. Why? Death. While we were alive, that law had jurisdiction over us. But death frees us from that jurisdiction. Our death? Yes, in Christ. Christ's death, our union with him means that law's jurisdiction and our obligation to fulfill the covenant of works has ended. Why? Because Christ himself has fulfilled it. He has fulfilled the duty, having loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he has fulfilled its penalty in having suffered a horrendous death, separation from his God upon Calvary's cross. And therefore in him, by virtue of his death, We are no longer under that marriage. It is over. The fourth question is this. Do you not know that you are now married to Christ? New marriage. Do you not know that you are now married to Christ? You are married to him under a covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is that Christ himself has fulfilled the covenant of works. And what he has done in fulfilling the covenant of works is reckoned to us. It's counted as ours. Because we are one with him. And now under this covenant of grace, he has promised what? I will forgive you your sins. I will forgive you your iniquities. I will forgive you your trespasses. That's justification. Not only that, I will write the law upon your hearts. That's sanctification. He promises these tremendous blessings for all those who are one with him through faith. Question number five. 
Do you not know that this new marriage produces fruit for God? This new marriage produces fruit for God. How? It produces fruit for God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Look carefully at what Paul said in the sixth verse. But now we are released from the law, the law as a covenant of works, having died, right, in Christ to that which held us captive, so that we serve now. How do we serve? Not under the old written code, but how? In the new life of the Spirit, born again. The Spirit of God now living in us. And in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, our works made acceptable and pleasing in the very sight of God. Fruit for God. Please. I made these comments several months ago and they are worth repeating. Here they are. At least I think they are. Here they go. When we think of good works, fruit, we have a tendency to do what? We think in terms of what happens after work is over and the kids are in bed. We think of what happens in terms of the four walls of a church building. We have a defective view of fruit for God. Hear these words. The activities of everyday life are part of the good works for which God created us. The activities of everyday life day life no matter how mundane in christ by the spirit that is things that are now done out of love for god everyday things are part of these good works this fruit for god answering email attending meetings balancing budgets teaching students packing lunches preparing sermons cutting grass changing diapers, laying foundations, painting walls, performing surgery, cleaning cupboards, washing windows, and on and on and on it goes. It is life lived for the glory of God. These are our good works. This is the fruit that we now offer to God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Hear Paul's admonition. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everyday activity. Sixth question is this. Do you not know that this What I just described. Do you not know that this is freedom? Oh, brothers, sisters, that's freedom, what I just described. Freedom indeed. Look again at his language in verse 6. But now we are released, released, liberated from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Captive in what sense? Meaning we could never fulfill it. We could never do it. We could never please God under the covenant of works whereby our obedience depended on us and all we could offer was from a polluted fountain. But we've died to that so that we serve not under the old written code but in the new life of the Spirit. Don't make the mistake so many make 
And it is the mistake that Paul is primarily addressing starting back in chapter 6, verse 1, through here to chapter 7, verse 6. This idea, this notion that God's grace means I'm free from the law. Didn't he just say we are free from the law? Yes, but not in the sense most of us think. He is not saying we're free from the law. That's it. What is his point? We are free from the law as a covenant of works. That's what we are free from. We are no longer under obligation to obey the law as a covenant of works, meaning it is our responsibility to do all that we can to earn God's favor. It's our responsibility. God requires of us, demands of us our best efforts, and he's going to weigh us in the scale, and hopefully there will be enough to please him. We are free from that, completely free. We're not free from the law. Oh, that law led us to grace, and grace leads us back to the law. Why? Because God now writes the law where? Upon our hearts. And he gives us a desire to do what? Obey his will wherever he has revealed it in his word. He has given us his commandments, not so that we keep them in order to merit or earn his favor, but we keep them as an expression of our thanksgiving for this new marriage in which we find ourselves, whereby we are knit together with the Lord Jesus Christ. You want an interesting tidbit of information? Here it is. By my reckoning anyway, the New Testament is approximately a fourth the size of the Old Testament. Right? I mean, you just kind of visualize it in your mind. That makes sense, doesn't it? The New Testament is more or less a fourth the size of the Old Testament. Now, here you go. You ready for this? The New Testament contains twice as many commands. The New Testament contains twice as many commands. We are not free from commands, friends. We're not free from the will of God. We're not free from the law of God. We are free to obey God in liberty out of gratitude and thanksgiving for what he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does God's grace encourage sin? Do you not know? Three times he asks it. Do you not know? Two men. Do you not know? Two masters. Do you not know? Two marriages. Oh, do you not understand who you are in the Lord Jesus? Do you not understand your union with him? At the penalty of sin, yes, paid in full. The power of sin broken. We're awaiting its final annihilation at glory. Come, Lord, quickly, come. But now we find ourselves in this battle between the flesh and the spirit. But its power, its dominion is broken. And now Paul's great admonition is what? If you know that, if you understand that, act like it. That is all he is saying. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 7, verse 6. That was my admonition, admonition for believers, brothers, Christians. Now a concluding word, exhortation for any unbelievers in our gathering. Yes, my intention is to make you feel uncomfortable. I pray you do feel comfortable with us as Christians. Uh, I pray we're welcoming. I pray we're, we're loving and uh, very receptive and go out of our ways to make you feel comfortable but at the same time, I'm, I'm not doing my job unless the Word of God makes you feel very uncomfortable. It should make you feel very, very uncomfortable. If all this is true, it has certain implications for the unbeliever, doesn't it? The starting point is what? That this God of whom we are speaking 
is no glorified Santa Claus. This is a God who dwells in unapproachable light. This is a God who is holy, 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 the Lord God whose glory fills the universe. This this is a God whom no man can approach, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. And this is a God who requires holiness, absolute perfect holiness of you if ever you are to enter his presence. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis draws out the significance of this beautifully, wonderfully, better than I ever could. In one of his books, I think it's called The Silver Chair. And in The Silver Chair, he portrays Aslan, that Christ figure, God incarnate, as a terrible lion, a roaring lion, majestic, holy, frightening, terrifying. And at one part of the story, the little girl, one of the main characters, her name is Jill. She's in a forest in the woods. And she is parched with thirst and uh, looking for something to drink. I mean, she thinks she's going to die. And she's looking desperately for something to drink, something to satisfy her thirst. She hears a brook. She hears a stream. She makes her way for it. She enters into the clearing. And there to her horror, standing between the stream and her is whom? Aslan. is lion. And he's not smiling. He's frowning. And she is arrested by holiness. The majesty, she is terrified. She thinks she's about to be consumed, Uh, extremely frightened. But before she can turn and run, the lion beckons her to come forward, saying, "If now hear this, please. If you are thirsty, come and drink. It's almost as if he's saying, I dare you. If you are thirsty, come and drink. Jill is extremely thirsty, but the lion is too terrifying. She says, I dare not come and drink. The lion declares, then you will die of thirst. Jill replies, well, I suppose I will go and look for another stream. To her shock, the lion declares, Jill, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. That is our God. Oh, we're thirsty, aren't we? Friend, you're not a Christian. You are thirsty. Please acknowledge it. This, this world is so empty. And there's a thirst that can only be satisfied. There's a hungering that can only be satisfied in God. This life only has meaning in God. The answers to the great philosophical questions, what is right, what is true, what is beautiful, these only have answers in God. Satisfaction can only be found in God. But what is the problem? Between us and that satisfaction stands holiness, perfect holiness, and a covenant of works by which he demands of you what? Perfect holiness, perfect obedience. But here is the good news. What is it? Draw near and drink. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself declared, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, And believes him who sent me has eternal life. Hear these words. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The holy God invites you this morning, encourages you, commands you to draw near and drink. But my friend, you dare not draw near in your sin. He is a consuming fire. Draw near in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Christ who has paid the penalty for sinners. Christ who has fulfilled that awful command, be holy, perfect as God is holy, and approach in him, and stoop, and bend down, and drink. And there you will find forgiveness for your sins. There you will find assurance of eternal life. And there you will find a peace which passes all understanding. The glory of God, I pray at this day, my friend, if you're not a Christian, you will hear this call. And you will turn to a wonderful Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, our God in heaven. We make it our prayer this day that you would work in all of us by your word, performing your good and perfect will. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask it for your eternal glory. We ask it in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.